This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This episode begins the 13th season of Office Hours. And this is episode 274, in case you haven't been counting. Thanks for listening. This autumn, Westminster Seminary, California, begins its 41st year. And our original purpose is still our primary purpose, and that is to prepare men for pastoral ministry. It's our conviction that, through the preaching of the gospel, God the Spirit brings his elect to new life and to true faith. And it's through the preaching of the Word of God that God the Spirit grows His church, the Church of Christ, both numerically and spiritually. Around here, we say Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ is gospel and His church. And that's not a mistake. It's through the establishing of new congregations, church planting principally, that the kingdom of God is expanded along with the continued work of established churches. We're always excited when we hear that one of our graduates is planting a new congregation, and so we're excited to talk with Adam Kalustian about his new call, Ventura Reformed, a grassroots church planting project in Ventura, California. They're aiming specifically to establish a new Reformed congregation, not only with Reformed and relocating people and with Christians becoming Reformed, but especially with people who do not attend any church at all. Adam is a graduate of Biola University, and he graduated from Westminster Seminary, California. He's been married 21 years, and together he and Lena have one son. Adam joins us now to talk about why he accepted a call to plant a confessional reform congregation in Ventura, California, as a way to try to reach the lost. Hi, Adam, and welcome to Office Hours. Dr. Clark, thank you. Good to be on. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. It's good to uh, talk to you. Good to hear from you. And uh, I was just trying to remember when you graduated. And I. That's a good question. I just can't. <laughs> was it, <laughs> it's been was a while. it 2001 or 2002 right there, or somewhere? Number 2000. It was the year 2000. Oh, my. And I had recently at that time, a few months before, I think, made profession of faith in Escondido URC actually. And yeah, I was then hired as an intern in the Ontario URC and served as pastor of outreach there with Pastor Rand Lanky, an old name for some of us listening, I'm sure. That explains all the gray that I had seen in your beard. (laughs) That's right. No, I was perfectly full color as long as Pastor Rand was there. When he left, then the gray started coming in, the adjustment of that. But uh, I stayed in the Ontario congregation after he left about four years in when I was there. It was a great mentor and great experience together. And uh, I just stayed on and, and took the primary preaching and pastoral responsibilities. So altogether, we were there about 20 years until April when we began this call in the city of Ventura. So big change for us. Well, it is. And uh, it's very exciting to be reminded of the Lord's faithfulness in uh, your life and that you were so settled in a congregation. You know, in some places, it's sort of expected that ministers will move around every three, four, five, six, seven years. And there you were in Ontario for 20 years. Yeah, that's our beloved home congregation. Tremendous amount of grace that they always, always showed me. And I think it was harder for them to lose Lena and our son, John, my wife, Lena, and our son, John, than it was for me to move on. And I think, of course, once you're not in the middle of it all, too, you you look back and see how the Lord cared for you so much 
in the congregation that you served. Well, and being there 20 years, you had a chance to watch a whole generation grow up. So the babies that were being baptized when you first got there, they were graduated from college and getting married and beginning to start families of their own. Yeah, absolutely. So great memories that are just a big part of how the Lord has loved us in our lives. And we want to take all that he's given us, including through that church, into our new uh, ministry here. Just for the sake of the listener, I know a little bit about your story, but I think it would be good for the listener to hear a little about your story. Because when I first met you, you were very much in the early days of becoming a Reformed minister. You were not raised in a Reformed context. No, that's right. So tell us a little bit about the context in which you were raised. Right. I'll try to tell the short version. I grew up, I'm ethnic Armenian. So I grew up in an Armenian evangelical home, which is most Armenians, Armenian Orthodox, you know, the earliest institutional church in the world, wear that badge with honor. But the congregation I grew up in was an immigrant congregation of the Armenian evangelical movement, which was basically middle of the 19th century, kind of a mini Protestant reformation that happened in the Armenian Orthodox church context. And so I grew up in a church, basic Bible-believing church, all kinds of different influences theologically, although I wasn't aware of it at the time. And I was just kind of a garden-variety, Bible-believing, evangelical guy. Loved church. It was the center of my life. And about a year into college, I had met an old camp counselor from our churches who had been talking with an OPC chaplain while he was in the Navy who had introduced him into Reformed ideas and thinking in a very rudimentary stage. And so those ideas were filtering back to some of us that were younger in those churches, and that just kind of started it all. It was, for me, the typical story about predestination, fighting over that, and reading the scriptures seemed like for the first time in many cases, and slowly the Lord introducing a a pure understanding of the gospel and uh, relieving a lot of things I carried, self-righteousness, guilt, kind of works performance-based things. Not that I was being taught any of that explicitly. I was really grateful for my broad Christian upbringing in a lot of ways. But yeah, to come into contact, as a lot of our listeners know, with historic Protestant truths and ideas just changed my life, obviously. Humbled me, gave me a burning desire to continue to share God's Word with people, which I was already looking to do in the churches I grew up in. And then just going on that journey of learning more, reading more, studying more. By the time it was seminary time, still in those churches I grew up in, I knew enough to know I wanted to study at a Reformed seminary. And some of the professors at the time here were ones that I was hearing speaking at conferences and things. So it seemed like a good fit. I came down here. And then about, I think my third year in, ultimately, it was clear I wanted to pursue profession of faith in a Reformed church. So I made profession of faith in Escondido around that time of my graduation. And then the Ontario Church was looking for someone who could help them bridge between the strong heritage Dutch Reformed congregation and a lot of new people who were coming in through either White Horse Inn or R.C. Sproul's ministry and introduce them to the Reformed faith, help them to kind of round out their understanding of the Reformed churches and knew some of the pitfalls of people coming in and, and also how to help the established congregation understand what some of these people were thinking and why they were coming. And so I was a good fit for that and uh, served as an intern for a while. And as I gained their confidence, they ordained me as a pastor of outreach. And then, as I said, uh, went on from there. But that's a little bit of my story. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. I think I know who that sailor was who told you about the Reformed faith, but just to make sure we nail that down, you're talking about the Reverend Moses Jambazian. Am I right about that? Yes, I am. 
the very one, the pastor in the Pasadena URC. That's a funny story. I should tell it. I, he gets tired of me telling no, it. No, go ahead, please. We got sent by our churches to Urbana, which was um, InterVarsity's big missions conference. I think they did every other year over the new year at Urbana in Illinois. And we were on campus one night, and I noticed Moses was always very cynical in some of the comments he would make about the worship band or the just outrageous speaker. There were some good biblical speakers, to be sure, but there was some stuff that I couldn't really put my finger on. It just didn't seem right. But Moses would come out and say things like, that doesn't seem biblical. And, you know, in the, the context I grew up in, no matter what anybody said, as long as they seemed enthusiastic and as long as they seemed, you know, that their heart was in the right place to raise a question about what they were saying or to compare what they were saying with the scriptures was kind of verboten. You didn't do that. That was not nice or not appropriate. So hey, I noticed he was doing this and I kept saying to him all week, you know, that attitude is a little bit <laughs> amiss, but it's not very sanctified. But one night we're walking back and he was asking me about what's God's part in salvation, what's man's part in salvation. Of course, in my own mind, I was one of the best Bible students of my age and in my little circle I grew up in. So I thought I knew all the answers and everything I said and quoted this verse or that verse, he'd kind of contradicted and he'd start quoting a longer passage of scripture which I couldn't really follow what he was saying. And it all came to a head when we were talking about election. He looked at me after this back and forth and he said, so what you're saying is this. And he basically described Arminianism. And I said, yeah, that sounds exactly right. That's, that's clearly what the Bible is teaching. He knew what I thought more than I knew what I thought. He looked at me and he said, it was heated by this point. He looked at me and said, congratulations, Adam. You're the author of your own salvation. <laughs> and I, so I actually, I actually physically went after him. I tried to fight him. And uh, there was a third friend with us who didn't know what anything was going on in this conversation. And he, he broke us up. And then as we're going back and I'm trying to cool off and Moses, because he knew me and he's a good friend, he kept going at me. I mean, some people he obviously be more gentle with that. That wouldn't have worked with me. So he kept coming at me and he said, well, OK, we're going to get back to the dorms. And what we're going to do is we're going to open the scriptures and anybody can make any point they want to make and demand the other person answer any question with this rule that. You must make your point or ask your question directly from some passage in the scripture. So I was excited. It's perfect. You know, I'm set up for this. Got John 316 already. Let's get back there and I'll show him that this idea of the system is true. And whatever he's even talking about it, is he in some cult or some weird fringe group that's got a hold of him? I don't understand. And we get back. And it was, for me, a Romans 9 type thing, basically. He eventually got to, you know, John 3, Romans 9. We're reading through it. And like I said, I must have read that. A hundred times in my life to that point, probably, quote unquote, taught on it in youth group or whatever. And then I'm reading it and he's stopping kind of after each sentence or whatever, each verse and explaining it a little bit. It's making sense. I like reading the Bible for the first time. And as we're as we're going through it, I remember you get to the part where it's like, you know, God uh, will soften the heart of those whom we will harden those whom we harden. And then I'm thinking in my mind. Well, that can't be true, because if God finds fault, then who could resist his will? And Moses, why don't you read the next verse? And it says, you know, so some of you will say, (laughs) (laughs) how does God find fault for who could resist his will? And I just step back and there's something weird is happening. I don't like this so much. So I remember (laughs) I remember thinking overnight, well, I guess I have a few options. I mean, one is I could suppress the reality of what I'm reading in a sense, not that I was overly confident in whatever Moses was saying or my own understanding of what we were reading and how he was explaining it at that point. But still, I thought, well, this is worth at least exploring more. And it's clearly different than what I think now. Now, I could suppress that and just go on and pretend it's not there. But that seems like that's not a very good option. Or I could accept this and not follow the Bible anymore and 
that didn't seem like a viable option either. So I, by God's kindness and grace, it's not like I prayed about it or anything. Or I just the, the next morning I thought, well, I should have an open heart to whatever the scripture says. And that was kind of the beginning of my reform journey. That's when we started attending, you know, Ligonier conferences or whatever and started making contact with different reformed people that we knew of or that got introduced to us. I mean, you have to understand coming from outside the reformed world. I mean, it is my world now, but it was not at all my way. I didn't even know it existed. Even church history, I had a vague idea about some of the major differences among churches, but not in a real thoughtful way. And of course, this also happened at a time in my life when you're intellectually maturing and starting to ask questions about whether the faith your parents taught you, the religion, the beliefs, the worldview is actually what you think about. So it's all kind of coincided. And yeah, it just opened up an entire thing. You start to learn about the history of the church and who believed what and why and what happened. And the more I learned, the more I was drawn into the scriptures and into the you know, what we call the Reformed faith, obviously. And I think the Calvinism in the sense of the soteriology that Doctrines of Grace, that was the first thing. And it took me a while, even through seminary, I think, hearing a lot about the doctrine of the church and about the sacraments in particular. Those things, of course, I was being taught, as I look back over my notes, the first year and a half, those introduced to those ideas. But it probably wasn't until my third year that I really, I think, was listening and understanding more and seeing the significance of those things. Anyway, that's what propelled me to want to be in a Reformed Church. So anyway, that's kind of what happened. I vaguely remember you in Medieval Reformation, and I think I can affirm that you probably weren't listening. No, that's a great story. It was your story. second year. You know, it was your second year. Well, yes. So you, had, you had been through all the knuckleheads of the class before me, the <laughs> aforementioned uh, revered Pastor Moses and yeah. cohorts. So you had suffered through them your first year, and then the second year, you were just relieved to have all these compliant wonderful, respectful people like me, like actually, Adam Cooley. <laughs> actually, you know, there's a lot of truth to what you just said. That That is, there's a lot of truth to that. So, uh, you know, I've never heard that story. And uh, it's, oh, yeah. it's a great story. And it's very encouraging. And I, I'm sure it's encouraging for the listener, too, because, you know, a lot of us come into the Reformed churches from outside. And so we all have you know, to one degree or, or another, yeah. a similar kind of a journey. I got to say one more thing about that. Just because in a way, that conversation and, and that discussion to me as a church boy and as somebody who started in a rudimentary way, reading theology and studying the history of the church and all that, some of those discussions may have seemed more technical. But I do remember when I made Profession of Faith, you were there, I'm sure you don't remember, you've seen this a lot, but in my interview to make Profession of Faith in Escondido before the council, Pastor Andrew Kaminga was leading the interview, and he asked me, I think I started rambling on, like I'm doing now, about a lot of theological whatever, you know, seminary students probably, I was apt to do that. But he stopped me and he's asked, Adam, I want you to tell me personally why do you want to make profession of faith in a Reformed church? Why do you want to follow Christ in the context of this congregation and in the Reformed congregation? And I remember first going through my mind and looking for memorized words of the catechism or things that I've been preparing for this interview and learning. But I was kind of overcome emotionally that, you know, all the technical language aside, the issue was that the Lord loves me and forgives me for all my sins. And that's why I'm Reformed, because this is the beautiful gospel. It's simple that it's grace from beginning to end for the glory of God to rescue an absolutely helpless and hopeless sinner apart from him. And 
he loved me from before the foundation of the world. I can't believe it. And he worked in history to send our savior and savior of all of his people. And he found me through different ways. And then he found me, you know, later to grow me in an understanding of how I don't contribute to any of this. It's all of his love and grace and mercy and all for his glory. Cause of course that's who he is. And he's going to share his glory in anything, let alone something so consequential salvation, you know, with anyone else. But I remember that point in the profession of faith. And that's why I'm so thankful for how I was trained at West Cal and for the church that I was you know, able to come into. And I'm sure you remember, Scott, but you did some of our premarital counseling. I said, yeah, ask Lena how that goes. If she's going to refer, <laughs> if she'll ever refer you, Dr. Clark, to do premarital counseling again. Yeah, look at us. So this is why I'm so appreciative of the training I had at West Cal, the counseling that I had from a lot of you men, both in training for ministry, but also personally. This is why I'm so thankful for the church I made profession of faith in in Escondido. This is why I'm so thankful for the congregation that we came into in Ontario, newly married, 10 years later. A wonderful surprise. Our son was born there. So our, our John was 10 years old. His first 10 years were in Ontario URC. And uh, he, he went to the school that so many were part of right there in the community. And this is why I'm so grateful for all of that. All the other ways we could explain it aside, it's the gospel of the grace and love of the Lord Jesus. This is all we have. This is our only comfort in life and in death uh, is that we belong to him. So yeah, that's, I mean, I, I became reformed, however you want to technically describe it, but it's that Christ loved me and is continues to teach me more about his love and grace and wants us to share it with others. The seminary has been a tremendous blessing to our church here in town. It's really been a tremendous blessing. So we, we're, we're grateful to God for that. Here at Westminster, our commitment is still to those solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, sola fide, solo Christo, sola gratia, and supremely, of course, soli Deo Gloria. And not only is our commitment to those things, but our confidence is in what they actually express. On this particular occasion, Bob came up from uh, Escondido, and he came up and he spoke on infant baptism in particular to a large group of college students. He delivered this lecture that was very well received and made quite an impression on a young man that is now here. Westminster was really the first encounter with Reformed church life. That, more than anything, kind of woke me up to the richness of the Reformed tradition. We have top-tier professors at Westminster. They've poured their heart and souls into making sure that they're bringing the best of scholarship and understanding to those lectures. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 760-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ. His gospel and his church. People dare to suggest that reformed people don't have a heart. So, Well, some of them don't. <laughs> but dear listener, if you run into someone who says, well, you reformed people are all head and no heart, then uh, you uh, play this uh, episode for them. You say, I want you to listen to uh, Adam Kalustian talk about what it meant for him to discover the reformed confession and the Heidelberg Catechism and what it meant to discover that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, Adam, you have been active over the years on the radio. You had a well-known and uh, I think well-listened to radio program in the Los Angeles Metro. And uh, then you were doing podcasting in the early days of podcasting. And in a lot of that work, you were trying to communicate Reformed Christianity 
to the broader evangelical world. But now you're doing a church plant in Ventura, California, and you're aiming directly at the unchurched and the lost. So how did that come about? And help me relate the one thing, the sort of the mission of communicating Reformed Christianity to the broadly evangelical world, to now your work of planting a congregation and then trying to communicate this to the unchurched world. Yeah. Well, I think the idea of church planting always intrigued me. Not necessarily that I would be a church planter, but we should be involved a lot in church planning. In Ontario, we were able to do a good amount, I guess, relatively speaking, of church planning work that we were involved in. So that was always really thrilling to me. And uh, there were times through the years you think about, is the Lord calling you to a different pastoral ministry? And one of the options at different times could have been church planting projects and things. So that was one thing. It was always personally on my radar in a way. But this idea about planting more churches generally I sort of joke, I read over the last few years more missional literature, which at times was hard for me to read some of it specifically because a lot of it I didn't think was as faithful to the historic Protestant faith as it should have been, which is a story for another time. However, growing, being more sanctified, I mean, it's funny you point out like our past iterations of podcasting and radio and uh, different things throughout the years of ministry and reform people not having a heart. I will say, and the internet never dies, unfortunately, but I'm not always thrilled with everything I've ever said and done and the attitudes with which I've done it. So I think I would counsel people who look askew at crazy reform people sometimes. Well, look at them five, ten years down the road and see if the Lord's love and grace and word and ministry has had a sanctifying effect on them. I would like to say, like in this approach to church planting and evangelism, still 25% of the missional quote-unquote literature I read is not, I it, I don't like it. It's hard to read it. it, it I joke, it like turns my stomach. It's not biblical and whatever. But 75% of it really challenged me to think more about who my neighbor actually is, because I will say that And it's probably because of my own experience and a lot of the people that were around me, a previous iteration of our own culture here in Southern California, most people were somewhat religious. A lot of people were evangelical, at least broadly, even if they weren't faithfully attending church. There were more theists, more people who gave some credence to the Bible being God's word. But over time, that has radically changed. So I became good in my own eyes, at least, at talking to people and serving people who are already Reformed and serving people who are becoming Reformed, you know, through means that have nothing to do with me or they've heard something that we've done. Great. And I think we're good at that. And I want to continue to serve God in that way. But what maybe fell off my radar at some points were people that lived right around me who were unchurched either completely or deliberately had left church or had bad experiences in churches and are just not attending church anywhere. And of course, today, you know, fast forward, I mean, this is most of the people that live around you if you live in Southern California, the majority of them. People say they believe different things, but most people do not go to church. So the more I thought about that, and I thought about how people are trying to, I think, uh, reach them. I think in my own way of thinking in my ministry, you know, you advertise to them or you go out somewhere and talk to strangers or you really double down on the things that you do well in your own church or in your own Christian life and family, and then hope that people just get attracted to it and just come. But what I hadn't thought about is how do you become a meaningful presence in unchurched people's lives, since they're the majority of the neighbors, and everybody wants to reach the lot. I don't know anybody that says, I don't want to be used, or a church that says, I don't want to be used for outreach or to reach the lost, or I don't want to be evangelistic. Everybody wants to, but how are 
let's just say even Napark churches, our broader you know network of sister churches, how are some of them trying to serve unchurched people and become a meaningful presence in their life. And so the more I thought about that, I was reading some people that were saying, well, church planting is a great way to do it because it's hard for people to come into an established church through even no fault of the established churches, which I want to underscore because they have their vital evangelistic ministry in some ways that a church plant can't do. But you know, there are always established ways that institutions are, and they have a lot of responsibility toward discipleship and care of their congregation, which sometimes takes time and resources away from the kind of ministry that invests meaningfully and sacrificially in the lives of unbelievers to try over time to build relationships and gain a hearing so that there can be meaningful spiritual conversation. So that's something that had begun to awaken in me, even in Ontario, through some reading of my colleagues and then the elders there and, and thinking about our own place as the demographics of our you know, neighborhood had radically changed through the years. And then, yeah, it just was kind of on hyperdrive thinking about it in a church planning context and then talked about it with the elders in the Pastina church, who was our mother church. And they had a couple of families out in Ventura. So it was all those things came together. That's the short answer. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Tell us a little bit about your new neighbors. What does it mean to be in Ventura, California? I know on your website, VenturaReformed.com. Com or .org? I don't remember. .org. VenturaReformed.org, yep. VenturaReformed, one word, .org. And somewhere on there, you describe yourself as being on the Oxnard Plain. Yes. And you say that uh, there are 400,000 people there. Right. So if you're a Southern California person, so this is something I learned, too. You drive through the valley, the San Fernando Valley, you're going west, and, you know, it's 110 degrees by the time you're getting through Thousand Oaks and the Gray Hills. And then you kind of go over the hill and you come down into Camarillo and then Oxnard and then Ventura and then Carpinteria. So what I'm calling the Oxnard Plain there is that little stretch after you come down the hill out of the valley. Now, I thought it was interesting. I found I just learned this when we got there, which is that Thousand Oaks, which is in the valley, is actually part of Ventura County, which I don't know why I didn't know that. But Ventura City itself is the county seat is in Ventura. But I don't think that the Thousand Oaks people, that's in the valley. (laughs) <laughs> they don't really consider themselves Oxnard Plain folk. And I don't think the Oxnard Plain folk consider themselves, you know, wedded to the Thousand Oaks. It's, it's a different kind of people and culture and whatever that's going on. So when I say the Oxnard Plain, I'm talking about those four towns, basically Camarillo, Oxnard, Ventura. You could throw in little Carpinteria, whatever. But that's the 400,000 people. Ventura itself is about 110,000, something like that. So if you're asking what kind of people, well, like anywhere, it's diverse the east side of the city of Ventura reminds me more of, and that's where our, we're establishing our home, reminds me more kind of where I came from in Ontario, a little bit more broadly diverse. And, um, the, you know, the west side, again, these are obviously gross generalizations. There's a lot of secularism, progressivism, generally speaking. And then also there's, interestingly, though, there's also a, a strong presence of more cultural conservatism and um, Americana kind of feel. So it's an interesting town, but just like anywhere. And uh, one thing I will say in networking and starting to get to know an area and all this, you can design programs and you can design methods. And if you want to speak of them in a little bit of a pejorative, attractional type ways of getting to know people, what have you. But the reality is, and anybody in church life knows this, no matter if you're in ministry or just 
regularly in church. There's a difference between what's on paper and demographic analysis and plans and this. There's between that and actual people on the ground. People are complicated. They're complex. They're interesting. They're different. You have to get to know people individually and as households and in neighborhoods, sure. And there are some characteristics that define different populations, but this is true anywhere. So it isn't that you have to go to a new place to do this, but if you just open your eyes and look around and think about, I mean, ask yourself the checker at the grocery store, what is their story? You know, how were they raised? Where do they come from? What's their outlook on life? And certainly there are broader things we can say about people that live in certain areas. But if you start getting to know people, it's amazing what the diversity of uh, thought and uh, where people are with God. So our desire is just to meet as many people as we can and begin to cultivate, like I said, sort of longer term, meaningful relationships with them to be able to serve them with the word of God with Christ from wherever they are, which, of course, is a mix of challenging them and loving them and serving them and and also being served by them and appreciating the way God has created them and how he's using them to bless the world. So all that is kind of how I view it. I guess what I'm trying to say is Ventura is like any other place. There's people there who need the Lord, and there are also people there who are of various kinds of, you know, convictions and following Jesus in different churches and have different ideas. So there's all of that there, like anywhere. I would love to see so many more confessional reform churches planted all throughout Southern California, of course, throughout the world, you know, smaller churches where the pastor can know the people and the people can know each other and the people are involved in their neighborhoods, in their communities, sharing Christ with their neighbors, loving and serving, being there for each other when we fail. And I want to be a part of that. So that can't really happen if we're only planting churches where Reformed people move to a new place and we plant one. Or these evangelicals who are becoming Reformed outside of us, you know, beg us for a church. So we should keep doing those things for sure. But we should also be more aggressive and go to the people who have a need, even if they don't acknowledge there's a need. So there's plenty of places around Southern California to do that. So I'm just hoping to be used by God in a modest way in that way. Remind us one more time, where can people go to find out about this work? So the best place to go is VenturaReformed.org. So VenturaReformed.org is our website. And I was joking with you off air, right? I'm of a certain age. And I have a disdain and a phobia for social media, and I've managed to avoid it for long in my life. And obviously, I think using social media is going to be a good tool to meet more people in the city of Ventura. I don't have broad designs on what it can do for us or me otherwise, but I do think it will help us to be introduced to more people. So through the website, you can find the places that uh, the socials are established, although my little group is telling me you've got to actually use the social media <laughs> and make regular posts and interact in order for that thing. But it's it's coming. It's on the way. I, we have some interesting ideas and we're just getting going. So find us on the web, find us on the socials, and you know, we'd love to help you in any way we could. By the time that this podcast airs, we'll say, is released, it will be uh, the first Monday in October. And by that time, you will have already held something on September 19th. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind getting out there, getting our basic presence established. But the short answer to that question is yes, we're having our first public meetings launching September 19th. There's this great historic 
confessional Lutheran church in town that's been there forever, I think probably a hundred years, if not close to it. And not only have they been willing to lease us their facility to hold our informational meetings there that will begin on the 19th, but they've become friends and they're praying for us. So anyway, if you go on the web, you can find the information about the meetings that begin September 19th. If you know anybody in and around the city of Ventura or on the Oxnard Plain, please encourage them. We're going to post the recordings if we don't broadcast them live. Not sure about that yet, but we'll definitely have those meetings up, which we'll use over time. Really, we're not expecting a whole big throng of people to be attending. We want to start these meetings to see what kind of traction we may have, but mostly so that we can start introducing Ventura Reform, which is the name of these meetings. Uh, these recordings made so that people can watch them as they're being introduced to us. The people I meet always look me up ahead of time, like we all do these days. If you're meeting somebody new, you look them up ahead of time. So all, all these guys I meet in town say, you know, I tried to stalk you online and I can't find you at all. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I know they're working on that. So it is helpful to have some more things up so that people can explore you before they actually would build the courage to be uh, introduced to you. So share that stuff, too, with people you know in that area. Well, Adam, it's great to talk to you, and it's very exciting to hear what you're doing and perhaps what the Lord is doing and the door that he's opening. And I'm especially encouraged by this notion of seeking to reach the lost through building relationships. I think that is a very, very fruitful way to go. You know, we've come through now 150 years of methods and plans, and that particularly in the last 30 or 40 years, you know, there have been all these techniques that we're all supposed to use in order to grow our churches. And sometimes I think we have forgotten a very basic, very simple, and I think really biblical way of relating to people who are outside the church. And I know this from my own personal experience. It wasn't a plan. It wasn't an event. It wasn't a song or a concert or anything by which I first heard about Christ. It was a man who took a few minutes, very imperfectly, but he took a few minutes to ask me about my spiritual state and to talk to me about Christ. And that was the beginning of my coming right. to faith. That's beautiful. And he built yeah. a relationship and he demonstrated that he cared about me. He wasn't trying to get something from me. He was trying to give something to me. And uh, even as a, you know, muddle-headed 15-year-old boy, I could see that, uh, you know, that he loved me and, and was trying to give me something that he regarded as being really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We will pray for you, and I'm sure the listener joins me in uh, saying that uh, uh, the listener, too, will pray for you and uh, wish you the Lord's Yeah, thank best. you. Just to close, a couple thoughts. I mean, we mentioned prayer. You mentioned prayer. And I do remember about probably 10 years ago on an interview-type call with a church planting committee, and one of the experienced church planters on the committee interrupted one of my answers about some question. He said, you know, Adam, what I'd like to hear you say more about, and it struck me what you brought it up here at the end, too, what I'd like to hear more for you, Adam, about is prayer, because in his experience in church planting, as we've all experienced in ministry and in life as Christians, really, the good gifts come from God only to those who ask him. And, you know, good and lasting things in if the Lord desires to uh, plan a reformed church with us in Ventura, it's his decision. Our job is to be faithful and ask him to, you know, do what's best and to rescue people that are his elect and to work faithfully and pray. But prayer is the key to everything Good, because you know only God can save sinners. Only God can sanctify sinners. Only God can plant churches and build churches and grow churches and stabilize them and help them persevere. And, and as I think I alluded to earlier, that's the only way he works. He doesn't want to do things 
where you could point back to the methods or to the church planter or to the core group or to the vision for this and that, because then he'll be sharing his glory. And that's not who he is. And he loves himself more than anything. And it should be that way because he's incomprehensible. He's awesome. He's terrible. He's the Lord. So we should ask him for his own glory to do good things. And then we can trust him and rest that he'll do what's best for him and of course that's best for us because of his goodness and love so prayer is the key so i thank you for you know bringing that up thanks for listening to office hours from westminster seminary california don't miss an episode subscribe now to office hours in itunes find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours copyright westminster seminary california all rights reserved